0: I think what design can do is really sort of address the idiosyncrasies and the problematic parts of a project and address it in a human way, both in the way that the product functions, in the way that the product looks, and in the way that the product enters your life.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today I'm talking with internationally acclaimed product designer Eve Behar. Originally from Switzerland, he grew up loving punk and windsurfing. In 1999, he founded Fuse Project, his San Francisco based industrial design and branding firm, and since then has produced groundbreaking award winning designs that have had a positive impact on the well being of people all over the world, including two Index award winning projects See Better to Learn Better, free eyeglasses for Mexican schoolchildren, and one laptop per child, as well as things like The Happiest Baby Snoo a robotic bassinet for soothing babies to sleep that's also being used in NICUs for healthier outcomes, and New Story, a collaboration with New Story Charity and ICON to design, plan, and build the world's first 3D-printed community. His clients include Herman Miller, GE, Puma, PayPal, SodaStream, Samsung, Issey Miyake, Prada, and many, many more, and his works are included in the permanent collections of museums worldwide. He is a pioneer of venture design, a business model in which designers partner with startups and entrepreneurs, foregoing the traditional fee-for-service payment structure in favor of equity a model that allows him to work on projects that have the potential to redefine their field and even define new categories. And recently, as of September 2021, he's released a book, a comprehensive retrospective of his 20-year career titled Eve Behar, Designing Ideas. So here's Eve.
0: I'm Yves Behar. I'm a designer and I work in San Francisco. I lead a team of multidisciplinary designers here at Fuse Project, and we work on a lot of firsts that are human-centered. That's why I get out of bed every day, is to uh, make a difference in people's everyday lives.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: I love that. So let's talk about your everyday life, starting from the ground up. Can you paint the picture of your early childhood for me?
0: I grew up in a small town on the French side of Switzerland called Lausanne. And it's a cultural city with a lot of outdoor opportunities to, you know, a very calm place, which is great when you're a child and um, drives you a little crazy when you're a teenager.
1: (laughs) I recognize that feeling.
0: I have two siblings. Um, we're three boys. you know my siblings and I are two years apart and we're all big into sports, swimming specifically. We're, we're very close, but we're quite different. My brothers are more in the sort of CEO management uh, side of things and I'm on the creative side.
1: And where are you in the birth order?:
0: I'm the oldest.
1: That's interesting to me. I think I find a lot of youngest who end up in the creative industries. So you really are a pioneer in many ways. Growing up in the the French side of Switzerland, a lot of outdoor activities to begin with. Did you start skiing? And at what point did you get into surfing?
0: Well, skiing was the sort of sports of choice in the winter. We swam throughout uh, competitively, uh, my brothers and I. I sort of fell in love around 16 years old with windsurfing, which I could do on um, Lake Geneva, which is our lake in Lausanne. And um, it was an amazing escape. I mean, you, you, know, you live in a landlocked country surrounded by you know very large mountains and being able to sort of just escape the, the sort of slightly conservative Swiss mindset and uh, do something that felt a little... Crazy and dangerous at times was how I survived my teenage years.
1: Well, so something a little crazy and dangerous at times is also punk, which I understand um, was another one of your escapes in your teenage years. Can you talk about how punk was formative for you?
0: Absolutely. I was lucky to grow up in the punk era. It was not only just a, a defiance to the existing order, it was also very much for me a permission to try things, to be creative. During the punk era, you didn't have to be trained as a fashion designer or an industrial designer in order to create. You could just build things. They didn't need to be perfect. They needed to be an expression of who you are and what how you're feeling. So I, I built my you know furniture in my house. I uh, made clothing. I spray painted. No, it was it was a it was a good way to you know rebel, but also put that rebellion at work. You know, create with others, and really sort of start to develop my my sense of design at that early age.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about like at what point did your sort of interest in these punk ideals of making and inventing and rejecting the status quo and stink- tinkering with the system translate into an understanding that that kind of is what design is and that that could be something that you could pursue. Well,
0: I I um, see myself as being very fortunate because I really found my passion. I found what I wanted to do at a at a very early age. I think I was fifteen years old and making really sort of felt uh, like the best way for me to express myself, to um, put ideas to work, and to creating a point of view is sometimes a counterpoint to what's being made uh, what's being presented to us as as sort of that status quo of industry you know it really became a a vehicle for me to to draw and to build I had um, a little workshop in my parents rental uh, basement maybe my my present for a 14 year old birthday was a workbench that's how I spent a lot of my time
1: So even though there's something kind of defiant about this, you're feeling supported from your family system?
0: Yeah, I was supported certainly in terms of finding my own way. You know, it wasn't sort of easy, you know, growing up in in a um, conservative environment, being and feeling, you know, different or looking for, for other outlets. And, you know, for context, most people didn't know what, industrial design was back in the 80s when I was a teenager. And there were no really well-known schools for design in in, uh, in Switzerland. You had to really look out to Paris or London um, to find design schools. So it felt very much outside of the realm of, of the expectations of both my teachers and my parents, because in Switzerland, you know, schools basically offered all the traditional liberal professions being a lawyer being a doctor being a businessman and I was looking for something outside of that so yes my parents were supportive but they were a bit uh, confused and maybe shocked at times about
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) right they had no frame of reference means they're like you know maybe a little nervous about what this could become (laughs) exactly did you have any role models for making, even any craftspeople in your family, or were you kind of the only maker as well? I
0: really think I was the only one. My father and my mother didn't work closely at all to a creative field, which meant they also felt at times unable to sort of help me or connect me in their sort of traditional, you know, circles. And I wasn't even that great of a draftsman. I mean, I, I grew up with. Kids, my best friends were, you know, incredible cartoonists and were great artists. And when I, you know, it was it was more like um like a hard decision to become a designer to find something I I was really uh I really wanted to pursue. But I had to apply myself for a good part of four or five years to become a good draftsman um, because that's how designers express themselves. You know, at the other end of a lot of Drawing and a lot of calluses on my fingers from, from doing that uh, nonstop. It turned out it was something I could actually do well.
1: So, how did you discover and make your way to Art Center to pursue industrial design, given that it was something we hadn't heard of back then and certainly not something that was local?
0: Yeah, there again, I feel the sort of stars aligned for me in a way that really changed my life. So, Art Center was not on my radar. Because it was so far away, it was in Los Angeles. And uh, I was looking at schools in uh, England. Suddenly, I heard, I saw through the newspaper that Art Center was opening a European branch about 20 minutes from my home. Um, and so that, that was the big click. And uh, I applied, I got into a preparatory program for Art Center. Then studied two years in Switzerland and transferred and did the rest of my studies in, uh, in Los Angeles, in Pasadena.
1: So that really was fortuitous, and you've been in California ever since. California must agree with you.
0: Yeah, moving to California was, you know, was so interesting, I think, so fundamentally different from Switzerland in every way possible, especially when you land in Los Angeles from a, from a small Swiss town. I think I was 20 when I arrived in L.A., And then discovered San Francisco through a family trip. And it was clear that San Francisco was more of the scale and maybe more of the sort of cultural background at the time that was the right fit for me. And it was also a place where design was emerging, as I would say, a counterpoint to sort of the New York design scene, the San Francisco design scene was was starting to grow. In the early 90s. And so it became a sort of logical place for me to come. Plus, I have to admit, one of the big draws to San Francisco was the fact that it was a windsurfing paradise. That's how I, it became a very easy decision for me.
1: So, with a degree in industrial design from Art Center, and you had studied industrial design, were you drawn to the technology? side of design that was emerging in San Francisco at the time? Or were you thinking more along a different line and and technology sort of seduced you later?
0: The technology was, was very interesting in those times because it was almost devoid of design. It was often impractical. It was sort of focused on enterprise applications. You know, the early 90s was really when technology just started was just starting to emerge for personal use outside of the sort of enterprise applications it really sort of was evergreen in terms of what design could do in the area. I guess I was interested in being useful in putting my you know my studies to use and uh, with so much demand in the Bay Area it uh, completely made sense for me to um, to be here.
1: So then what were the first few steps into the professional world like for you as a designer before you founded Fuse Project?
0: When I graduated from Art Center, I felt it was just the beginning of my training. So I was actually not comfortable at all being on my own, being a business owner. So I really felt working for, you know, good firms, great firms was the best way forward for me to continue to learn. Also being a recent immigrant with just barely the papers to stay in the U.S. Um, you know, it, it took a while until I was comfortable both with the language, with my then, you know, very thick French accent, speaking English, and my status to start, you know, Fuse Project. So I worked um, at the Burdick Group with Bruce Burdick, who um, was doing a lot of furniture with Herman Miller, for example. Then I worked at Lunar Design, then got hired at Frog Design, Um, And so those experiences were, you know, very formative in terms of, you know, learning how to be uh, a designer, both from a technical standpoint, but, you know, also being comfortable with this incredible openness that was the early 90s in in the Bay Area. And this is really where, you know, the, the biggest change, I think the biggest mental change happened for me was... You know, usually when you're a young professional in Europe, you know, back then, it took you a very long time to be uh, listened to, to be sort of respected, to be invited to the critical meetings, etc. Whereas in San Francisco, in the Bay Area... I was thrown as a junior designer into senior meetings. Um, I would be, you know, surrounded by people much older than I, which with PhDs in science and engineering and technology. Oh uh, man, and, <laughs> that's awesome! And they would still listen to you. You know, they they would look around the table and they would see the designer uh, sitting there, and they would uh, invite me to to state my opinion, to participate. And the beautiful thing as a designer is I could translate some of the diverse ideas around the table through drawing. I could give voice to people's you know dreams and aspirations with a few drawings and, and in a way create a, create a consensus very quickly about you know, where things could go. That was such a powerful experience. Actually, I think it reorganized my brain because when you think about it, I spent 20 years as a, you know, Swiss uh, person in a completely different environment from the very welcoming and very, you know, participatory, you know, world of San Francisco and Silicon Valley. That was sort of a a shock of my uh, early 20s. That was, um, that was for the better.
1: Wow, that does sound transformative. It also sounds like an incredible example of how drawing really can sort of be another language in the room that everyone can understand where there kind of isn't a language barrier, as long as the ideas can get communicated, and we can have kind of a rough visual and consensus of what we're talking about, then you can communicate in a way that is uh, often much more effective than words.
0: For me, that became a um, a way that to communicate for for the rest of my career. You know, I can illustrate this point with, uh, for example, my relationship with Samsung. You know, at Samsung, I've uh, worked with the teams there for about twelve years. You know, almost continuously, which is pretty unique. I mean, I've interacted with I think three different CEOs, so I have a longer you know sort of stint there than um, than some of the top management. But what was really unique is there was a gentleman there who was a sort of chief designer of the company, and we became very close friends, but we could never exchange a word with each other directly because he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Korean. So for about 10 or 11 years, um, we communicated in, through sketches, through seeing and listening to each other's body language while while always having translators in the room, obviously. But drawing is an incredibly powerful way to get close to people and people's ideas.
1: And so you founded Fuse Project in 1999, and over the last 20 plus years, the studio has been responsible for so many innovative and pioneering projects. I don't need to tell you, but just for our listeners benefit, like the sale chair for Herman Miller, Jambox, One Laptop Per Child, and Happiest Baby, Snoo, among so many others. And so I know you've just released a book called Designing Ideas, which we're going to get into. But looking back over the last 20 plus years of the studio, I am wondering in terms of you growing the business, growing the field being able to participate in projects that are really important and meaningful to you. What were the stress points and exhilarating highs along the way?
0: Well, I think starting your own business is, you know, is a huge step for anyone and certainly was a very big step for me. I tend to be more of the sort of creative, rambling mind in the room and starting your own business kind of requires a different type of uh, focus. You know, for me, the, the um, big discovery was that, you know, we would get these projects and maybe initially they were not that exciting or they weren't, you know, projects you would think are the typical kind of industrial designer uh, projects with high visibility. But then we would turn them on their heads and create something that, that was so unexpected that these projects would become very well known and, and, and recognized for how they changed the field. That sort of was a very powerful moment. It, it you know, was a very powerful lesson, which is you don't have to look for the big project, the car and the airplane or some very famous brand approaching you. You can actually build things from the ground up. You can help entrepreneurs. You can help scientists and visionaries build their dreams and, and become a part of that dream. And I think this is this is very much what happened with some of these early uh, endeavors that, you know, were risky and had a lot of uncertainty. But at the same time, um, were tremendous opportunities to um, create new directions in the market, create new experiences for people, maybe hopefully transform people's point of view and people's lives a little bit.
2: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast.
1: Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners. We're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole There's a couple of examples that come to mind. I'm thinking of Jimmy Jane and the, the work you did there as really transformative. But bef- before we get into your kind of creative process and some of these specific examples, one thing that you've cited as maybe being actually helpful for you to be able to work with some of these scientists and visionaries on building ideas from the ground up is the venture design business model that you started to employ at the studio. And in that way, you've enabled a kind of collaboration that maybe wasn't or wouldn't have been as easy or possible before and also enabled yourself to do better work. Can you break that down for us so we can really understand how it empowers you and also elevates the whole field?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So so early on, after two or three years of uh, Fuse Project in 2002 or so, I met some entrepreneurs and I, I realized that they could only afford us for a brief amount of time if they could afford us at all. And then, um, so we would create a new project, a new product, and then that one would sort of go out in the world and sometimes be successful. And, you know, the company would be sold or acquired. And I felt like, wow, I was a big part of this, but only for a brief amount of time for a very small fee. And um,
1: It's a little unsatisfying.
0: (laughs) Mostly my focus was how do we do better work? How do we support entrepreneurs over the long term? And what I, what I knew from observing the, the more traditional design world is the best work has been done by, you know, designers like Richard Sapper and others, you know, over long periods of time um, where the more you collaborate with a company, with, a, with an entrepreneur, the better the work gets because you both bring that outside perspective, but you also have a deep understanding of uh, the goal, the aspirations, the insights of a certain field. You know, for me, thinking around design venture, which which was this uh, new business model for us, was a way to really do better design work. And uh, in the process, we also found you know success. We also found a new way to run a design company uh, from a business standpoint. With an emphasis on, you know, the mid, mid and long term value that we're creating, not just the short term revenue we can make in fees. Um, so that was, um, that was a cornerstone for us. We were in the right place at the right time being in San Francisco, you know, in the early 2000s.
1: I mean, I'm kind of interested in this also and how it might ripple out and affect other industries. I've often felt like um, artists get a raw deal when they, you know, create a work of art and sell it once for some fee that may or may not represent the long-term value of of the work. The idea of having a little piece of ownership really appeals to me. I think NFTs are kind of, you know, related in that this little piece of ownership that also channels the revenue obviously channels the revenue back to those who who were really instrumental in the dna and of creation but then also with that little piece of ownership everyone is or at least the, those people are invested in the long-term performance of this so also that means you have a lot more investment in whether it is extractive to the planet, how it functions, whether it lasts, if it's truly iconic, all of those things, you know, the the better work that you're talking about, seem to be driven by the idea of being able to collaborate from the very beginning, and develop these long term relationships, and then be invested in the long term of the of the product or project.
0: Yeah, for me, the meaning of design, the original meaning of design is about the plan about the intent. Being able to work long term with entrepreneurs means that we can really get into those discussions early and then we can carry them forward over uh, years and years of an evolution of the brand, the evolution of the product, the evolution of technology that enables uh, both of those things. I would say the first few years I was able to collaborate with a large number of companies and help Really sort of understand better the process of carrying forward strong ideas, a strong mission, and a strong vision. And later on, I was lucky to become um, a co-founder in a, in a few companies as well. You know, now now we look back and I think, I think we've been a part of some, in, in some partnership, in some co-founding function or equity owner function in about 70 companies over the last 18 years or so.
1: Wow, that's sort of mind boggling. I'm pretty cool. So I'm excited to talk about your creative process. And this book that you've just released in September of 2021, Designing Ideas is a great showcase of that because not only does it go through many of the projects over Fuse Projects history, but it details the thinking behind them and some of the contextual information around which they were conceived. I also just want to give you a shout out for the way it's organized, because I feel like organizing it into the subheadings of reducing, sensing, transforming, giving, humanizing, and scaling, also with a mixture of your own sort of oral history, plus some contextual information from an outside source, makes it infinitely digestible and also fascinating in a way that means you don't have to read consecutively, but you still get the full picture and you can kind of organize it in your mind. So, very nice. Love that. I also think it's a great window into your, the way you work. And there are a couple of ideas I really want to sort of pick apart with you. We mentioned it earlier, but under the transformation category, Your work with Jimmy Jane, a sexual wellness company in which you did a rethink of the sex toy category and in turn designed some products that really changed the conversation and reduced the taboo around female sexual health and vitality, or at the very least, you know, mirrored modern attitudes in a way that forced the sex toy industry to evolve. You acknowledge that sometimes the greater purpose of design is to change hearts and minds. And understanding this, you know, if you're understanding this in the project, how does it actually sort of look in the creative process?
0: Let me answer the, the, the two parts to your question. I mean, the first part about the book, about, about designing the book or the format was really an interesting one for me. I'm, I'm more interested in storytelling than the notion of marketing projects or marketing our practice. In typical designer fashion, I guess, I had to rethink or reinvent what the coffee table book format might be about. So rather than doing something purely chronologically or uh, something that just presents each project in sort of a problem solution, you know, marketing our work uh, to it, I felt it would be more interesting to, to tell the stories of how things came about and also give a journalistic context for what was happening then, you know, what was the industry like? Or what, you know, how were people thinking of a certain field at at, at that particular time? And so it felt more, you know, more humble to do it that way. It felt more true. And ultimately, it felt You know that it was a it was a better reflection of of the adventures that we went on those 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 journeys around you know these products and these stories and you know sort of thinking now about uh, Jimmy Jane the way you the way you present it it was certainly one of these fields that was a little bit embarrassing to talk about back then I mean things have been quite different now I mean this was I think when we started working on it it was two thousand and eight. And a very good friend of mine, Ethan in Bowden, uh, decided to start a company, you know, focused on pleasure and, and, and vibrators were sort of the outcome of that. You know, we clearly saw that the industry was full of cliches and the industry was using sort of materials and manufacturing processes that weren't particularly healthy. And, you know, for some of the most intimate moments that we have as individuals or as couples. We talked about it for about a year and then we, we started working on a vibrator and it actually became a, a line of vibrators. It became three different ones. And it was not just one of the most interesting you know, projects in terms of challenging the norms, but it was also very interesting from a human standpoint because not everybody was comfortable working on the project even though in our studio at Fuse, you know, both women and men were interested in, in, in discussing it. And so, you know, we created this, this environment where we could talk about things that were quite intimate, you know, we could kind of put on the table our uh, reservations and our funny stories around, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, around, around the field. And I don't think I've had brainstorms where we laughed as hard and kind of <laughs> shared as much um, of our lives ever before or, or since, in fact. So I, I love the, the project because of how it brought us together as a team, how we were able to build something that to this date, actually the form two, one of the, the first one we launched, the Jimmy Jane form two is regarded as one of the a top seller and a top, top quality product out there. So it was really fun. But the, but the premise was, let's create things that are beautiful, work well, are healthy and that don't sort of, you know, perpetuate these cliches. And so the objects are for unaccustomed eyes, unrecognizable in terms of what they do to you. <laughs> They're not uh, anatomical copies, I guess, of, uh, or fantasies. So yeah, that, that made it um, a bit of a classic and certainly a departure.
1: I really appreciate you sharing that story. I love thinking about the team getting together and then being vulnerable with each other and laughing really hard and being brought closer together through this adventure in designing for pleasure. Absolutely. <laughs> so also in the book, you talk about your work in robotics, which, you know, we've seen with the Snoo and with LEQ and you are very vocal about the imperative that designers imbue robots with as much compassion as intelligence. And I think, I think that's a really important subject right now, the, the idea of ethical AI. I just wonder what the creative process is around that. The obvious fear is that we're going to automate the human experience and accidentally end up with more isolation than connection if we design our robots so well. So I'm wondering, like, how you approach that and, and how you draw those lines in the process.
0: Yeah, I think, I think the words you use are, are the accurate ones. You know, how do, how do we draw lines as designers? Technology has presented to us such challenges. A lot of AI, at least a lot of the AI we experience on a daily basis, you know, tends to sort of take away our attention tends to distract us, tends to uh, take us away from reality and from, from the important people around us in our lives. Um, and most of technology really is designed for the comfortable middle part of life. You know, when we're healthy, when we are in good shape, a lot of it tends to be take advantage in, in a way of our participation. The value that we create through our participation is really extracted for uh, not to our benefit. To me, that's that's not the best part of technology and certainly not the best part of what it can do. Um, and so I've been very interested in the last 10, 12 years in technology that really addresses the extremes of life, you know, early life or uh, aging or uh, when we have you know, health challenges or education challenges. Um, And technology there can serve us so well, not by, you know, replacing humans, but by complementing us, by creating a partnership between humans, their needs, and uh, what technology can provide. And in, in so many ways, it's easier too, because we, you know, it's much easier to train AI and technology to address very specific needs and to address these well and to sort of solve for a particular audience than it is to just create general purpose robots and AI out there.
1: What does designing a collaboration mean between a robot and a human?
0: So there's a, a number of principles that, that I put forth, I think about five or six years ago, about uh, designing the age of robotics and AI and smart environments. And one of them is that robots and AI should never replace the human connection, and we should never sort of create things that make the robots or the AI sort of more connected to the human than other humans or animals. Um, and so, not creating emotional dependence is um, is a critical principle that that we use. Um, and so, when I think about you know one of the you know initially. Maybe more controversial projects I was working on, um, which is the Snoo, the happiest baby Snoo. I, I worked on it for five and a half years, so before it it came out, which is a pretty long amount of time to uh, to work with an entrepreneur trying to trying to put their their idea out in the world. You know, one of the sort of critical elements of the project is, you know, how how does the function of the Snoo really sort of complement uh, parental needs, and help them cope with the uh, stresses and of, of of lack of sleep, for example. You know, postpartum affects twenty five plus percent of of, of parents. Um, and that's you know mostly been recognized as due to a lack of sleep. What the SnoO does it, it replicates Dr. Harvey Karps, um, who is the founder of of Snoo. it it replicates uh, his method for keeping babies asleep. And uh, as a result, parents um, get one to two more hours of sleep as do babies. And that has a tremendous amount of uh, positive health implications for parents. And, um, you know, but, but there was so much uncertainty when we started so much reluctance to think of it in this way I actually use that a little bit. So for the, for those five and a half years, people would ask me, so what's one of the most interesting projects you're working on today, which is kind of a very common question I get. And I would say, well, I'm working on a robot that will take care of babies and people would look at me, you know, with their eyes open. And I mean,
1: it sounds sort of dystopian
0: yeah. <laughs> in questioning faces and they would be, that will never work. I would never do that. I think what design can do is really sort of address the idiosyncrasies and the problematic parts of a project and address it in a human way, both in the way that the product functions, in the way that the product looks, and in the way that the product enters your life. And um, that's what we did uh, with the SNOO. And it turns out it's an incredible new tool for parents, for hospitals, you know, we're in 100 NICUs. And in fact, I want to say this, because today is the five-year anniversary of the launch of the SNU. So um, it's a special day indeed for um, for this miracle product.
1: Oh, happy birthday, SNU. I was going to ask you if there's anything in place to kind of track any uh, sociological information from the invention of the SNU through to, like, long-term development
0: there's uh, 15 clinical studies going on with the snu. The snu is used in NICUs uh, in about 100 hospitals, and that's because uh, premature babies need sleep in, in order to grow. Um, and so, adding sleep to uh, premature babies is um, long-term, you know, benefits. They, they get out of the um, of the NICU and out of the hospital faster. You know, I, I can't speak to the um, to the clinical studies, but. What I can say is, from feedback from users, I did get letters and we did hear from many parents who said, based on their experience of the, experience of the Snoo, they're thinking about having another baby.
1: <laughs> oh, we might have a baby boom on our hands and it might be your fault. <laughs>
0: so, you know, you go from Jimmy Jane to uh, making oh, more right. babies. <laughs> there, there are always uh, long-term effects and connections in our work.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. I'm seeing how the dots connect. You know, I I ask personal questions in this podcast because I believe that in order to humanize design, we need to also humanize designers. With that in mind, I would love to know if there is a chapter or an incident in your life that you would recall that might count as like a, a devastating heartbreak. I don't necessarily mean romantic, but one of those moments where you're just, the wind is knocked out of you, and you're required to pick up the pieces and regalvanize your sense of self. And I ask that because I think that those challenges often inform the nature of our drive and our strategy for resilience.
0: Hmm, That is a very interesting question. Yeah, resilience is critical, especially in the days that, we've, uh, that we live and, and the experiences that we've had in the last um, 18 months through the pandemic. You know, there's heartbreaks quite often as a designer because most of the things you work on don't work until you make them work. And so uh, grit and resilience are key. I'm often being told that I have a lot of endurance <laughs> in that process. But I think, you know, very early on in my career, I'll share something that i haven't told anyone, I think. Very early on in my career, in my very first job, I was actually not very good at it. <laughs> it was a job in uh, exhibit design. It took me about many, you know, a couple of decades to sort of figure out how exhibit design really works. But it wasn't about creating those sort of that singular moment and that singular wow moment that sometimes design does. I wasn't very good at it, and I I was told that I was going to be let go, <laughs> but in a gentle way. And I was given, you know, I was given a few months. Uh, hence, you know, began. This is this is still in the day of payphones, and I remember every single lunch, I would get some quarters, and I would get to the payphone in nearby the office that I was working at, and I would call uh, two or three offices that had told me they may have a position for me in the future um, and so I literally I think for about a period of three or four months I made hundreds of calls to the same person to the same receptionist <laughs> at those offices um, and uh, eventually one of one of those two gave me um, gave me a job but it was a time when, you know, with the uncertainty of being an immigrant and you know having a, a visa on the line and not knowing if I was going to have to go back to Switzerland and how I was going to get through, you know, that, that transition, it was certainly a, a big awakening and, and something that, you know, has made me very committed to our international designers at Fuse Project, um, to the system of getting visas, of getting you know, people permanent status. And I would say of all immigrants and refugees in general, even though I'm sure my experience was much more privileged than most, you know, there was a there was a time when I was on the um, in this uncertain time where I could I may as well, you know, sort of go back home and live with my parents. I'm really glad it didn't happen.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I really, I really appreciate it. And I can feel not only the uncertainty of perhaps having this new land that you call home kind of yanked away from you, but the uncertainty of having had a, a sort of career blow or maybe even at working at exhibit design and not excelling. And I don't know, did that erode your confidence in some way? Or And now that you look back at it, are you kind of glad that you were gently <laughs> encouraged to pursue a different aspect of design?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think every one of those big heartbreaks, and and there's a few that that came after that, when I look back, I can still feel, you know, the anxiety or the pain around them. But I can also see how I picked myself up and the outcome um, was for the better. There's no doubt that, um, you know, these failures, you know, can can lead to much better outcomes uh, in the mid or long run. That, that gives me certainly a little bit of a philosophy uh, in life is that things do happen for a reason. And by putting our energy and our attention and our heart in the right places, um, we can, you know, we do better on, on, the, on the next round.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you. So from your vantage point, looking far off into the future, what do you see and what do you want to see?
0: I think we're at the crossroads right now from an environmental standpoint. Um, as human beings, there is a tremendous amount of transformation that has to happen over the next 10, 15 years. And um, that means every industry, every human activity has to be rethought. It doesn't mean that we remove pleasure, or we remove enjoyment, which by the way, that's what humans are built for. You know, We're not built for long-term thinking, obviously, because we've been told about uh, this uh, climate emergency for about thirty years, and we've done almost nothing about it. You know I think I think we can we can rally and we can enact uh, change. And I also believe that design has a huge role to play in that. And um, this will be a time when you know companies large and small will be tested. It's certainly a time also where I think industry is far behind, what the desires and the wants and needs of the consumers. And um, you know, the role of industry is to fulfill those needs and wants for a more conscious level of uh, consumption. Um, but industry has a lot to do to catch up. Um, tremendous structural, you know, logistical changes, experiential changes need to be made. Design has a key role to play um, in that transformation. Um, and uh, the, the, the winners and losers you know, will be very clear. Hopefully designers answer that call as well.
1: Yes, I think it's, it's baked into most designers' ethos. Hopefully we can continue to really put our hearts and minds in the right direction.
0: That's the hope. That's what we
1: have to do. Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today and for sharing your story and your philosophies. I, I really enjoyed it and I feel so excited enlightened to know that the sexual pleasure from jimmy jane is actually being followed up with the extra sleep that snoo provides and i think you are making the better the world a better place just you know through through a pleasure standpoint alone
0: (laughs) (laughs) well thank you for that i enjoyed the conversation as well
1: Hey, thanks for listening. To see images of Eve's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help us out. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anoushka Stefan, and music by L1011.